Welcome to The Vine, a plant media project podcast with your hosts, Elizabeth Sheldon and Gina Vensel. The Vine is an insightful look into the world of plant medicine, exploring the changing landscape around cannabis and psychedelics, and ending the stigma through educational discussions. The Vine podcast does not offer medical advice nor condone any use of illegal substances. Consult your physician or therapist before making changes to your wellness plan and before trying alternative healing medicines. Today, we welcome Daniel Musick, a personal friend from Pittsburgh, PA, who is facing a long cannabis sentence in federal prison due to be handed down this March. We've invited Daniel to the Vine to share his story and to give a voice to many others in similar situations as the cannabis industry continues to make millions. Daniel, we so appreciate you being here and speaking with us. Um, So thank you for that. And um, letting our listeners have a firsthand understanding of what you're facing. So first, how are you doing with your sentence coming up in just a few short weeks? And also, how are you managing your mental health? Um, in candor, well, thank you again for having me on, first of all. Um, in candor, I'm not doing super well, to be honest. Um, and I mean, managing my mental health at this point, it's just day to day trying to survive the day. Um, you know, the, the, one of the things, and it's funny cause this is literally happening now. My wife's on hold downstairs with PennDOT because, I'm a pretty disorganized person. This is a little segue to just explain something, I guess, to the listeners. I'm a very disorganized person and I'm chaotic. So I never, and I don't drive. So I'd never really had a driver's license. I always had a state ID card and um, I had a passport. I used my passport for everything. Basically, I was just one of those people. I had to give up my passport when I got indicted. So it's like sitting in a safe somewhere in a marshal's office downtown. And then I just lost my ID. So when normally when someone loses their ID, I mean, that's a huge hassle for anybody. I know that's, that's something that's going to make anyone go, ah, fuck, and like kick their car in the parking lot when they realize it's not in their wallet. That's something I think probably everyone in America has gone through. So when I lose my ID, I have to call a probation officer. Then I have to call my attorney. My attorney has to file a motion with the court, has to be approved by the requisite court officers. I don't know if the prosecutor has to sign off on it or not. I'm not claiming they do, but they may have to. The judge or the judge's clerk or staff reviews it, issues then if they allow me to get my passport back from my uh, probation officer, then I have to go downtown, grab it for the set window of time that's allotted, go to a licensing center, and then attempt to use that to you know bootstrap to get my license, and then go through the same BS that everyone has to go through at a DMV, which is obviously one of everyone's. In a normal life, that's like one of your least favorite places to be. I mean, now it's like Disney World. But, you know, just, just to show like a small example, I mean, and these are like the quotidian small annoyances that hit you, the smallest problem now becomes absolutely insurmountable in the face of what's happening. And then it just underscores to you the overarching dilemma, which is that you are about to lose autonomy over every aspect of your life. You know, you're about like you're literally your freedom of movement, what you eat, where you go, what you wear, and really like your bodily autonomy. You can't control if people touch you or not. You know? So it's like, I mean, you're really, you're losing, you're losing it all. You are literally losing pretty much everything that a quote unquote normal person would ascribe to be their aspects that buttress their personhood. And to face that, um, if you're aware of it, I think if you really like can sit there and go through it and understand that it is 
absolutely it's well everyone everyone whether whether you have the lexicon for it or not doesn't matter just maybe you can express it better it is absolutely crippling it destroys you and that's i'm in the process of uh of being destroyed it kind of feels like they're just winnowing me down you know a little bit day by day week by week then at a certain point i go through a door that i don't walk back out of for however long and that's you know, I think that there's a lot of abstraction about prison and stuff, but I mean, you really do. You go sit in a box, you know, like your whole world is the size of a, a smallish suburban high school. That's it. That's all you see. That's all you know. Those three or 400 other men that are in there with you, those the besides the staff who don't like you and you don't like them. That is it. That's it. That's all you see. That's all you know. You get little pinpricks of light from the outside, you know, a letter, you get to make a phone call here and there. Someone can come and visit you if COVID restrictions don't lock it down, but that's it. So yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm trying as best I can, but I can honestly in candor say that, you know, despite my attempted strength, I'm like unraveling by the day, staring into the abyss. And, you know, I wanted to, you know, chat a little bit about your story um, and about the legacy market you know, versus the legal market. And we know that the threshold to get into the cannabis industry is a difficult one and hope that you might, you know, take some time to share, you know, what happened with you with our listeners. Yeah. So I was indicted in August of 2021 for conspiracy to distribute hundred kilograms or more of cannabis in the Western district of PA to wit Pittsburgh and to wit 183 kilograms, which is 404 pounds of cannabis. And my charges stem from April to May of 2019. So it was about two and a half years prior to when I was charged. Um, and, uh, and and there's like two counts. The first count is April to May 2019. And the second count is May 24th, 2019. So um, that and that was the day of the raid, which is if that, that's how all this really transpired or started moving. So, I mean, prior to that, to the day of the raid, yeah, I was a major cannabis trafficker in Western PA. Uh, some have said that I was the biggest cannabis trafficker in Western PA and in Pittsburgh. I don't know. I don't you know. They don't hand out trophies or whatever. I just go off of what I've heard from other people and what I've, you know, what people have said. And, you know, I've read in search warrants and things of that nature. So on that day, I was, we were picking up a load of cannabis and we had a stash house in Squirrel Hill that we used for offloading the wholesale shipments. I also had a retail store in friendship that did smaller customers. It was literally, it was like an underground dispensary basically in in a basement apartment. They were separate. So what happened was that day I showed up and the place was already under FBI surveillance. That was unbeknownst to myself and the other people who were there. The FBI had been investigating a street gang in Braddock that sold harder drugs and that street gang in Braddock had purchased marijuana off a person who purchased marijuana from us. So the FBI, you know, completely had no idea who any of these people were in, in the larger indictment at that time. The FBI followed the uh, breadcrumbs to Cavode Street in Squirrel Hill, and they set up on the place a few weeks prior I was unlucky because I had to show up that day because there was like a discrepancy in the count or something. I think it kept being a couple thousand under and um, I just went because I had to handle that. So we got there, we offloaded um, like 245 pounds of weed. I think we had enough, whatever the difference between 245 and 404, we had stored 
in a garage space below and orange lock boxes that like that was I, I used those everywhere at the time. And uh, the you know, everything was normal, normal day. Friday was our day that we would re up. We called it go day. Everybody would come and they would just grab what they needed for the week. The driver uh, departed and the guys at the spot started unloading everything and uh, stacking it up against the walls for when so when people would come, they could pick out the pounds they wanted and they'd make up trash bags and then they would leave and they kind of stagger them in like air traffic control. Uh, the, the philosophy was one hour of controlled chaos as opposed to people coming and going all week. The, we got word very soon after the driver left that the driver had been pulled over. I think the driver got pulled over right by Salivo. It's not Salivo anymore, but by the dispensary in Squirrel Hill that's by the Parkway East in Pittsburgh. Um, so we knew that. And, you know, Cavode Street's only about four or five blocks from there. So as soon as I learned that everything, my whole life just kind of, you know, I mean, it was like a lightning bolt from the sky or a bomb going off. My entire life just you know, stopped basically right there. I, mean, I could hear like, I could, I could hear like minute things like insects on leaves and stuff. And like my heart, like beating in my ears as soon as I saw that text message, because I knew enough from being on the street and my training in law to know that if they hit the driver, there was absolutely no way this was a one-off. There was just, I wanted it to be a one-off very badly deep in my heart. I really did because then maybe this wouldn't be as bad as I knew it was going to get. And I had no idea at this point it was going to be this bad. I mean, I, this is beyond my worst nightmare, but I, I knew it probably wasn't a one-off. So I ran into the apartment and I told the guys there, um, we have to go the driver got pulled and, you know, 99.9% chance there's a raid inbound They're They're, they're going to hit us with a search warrant soon. I don't know how much time we have. I mean, but they're not very far away. And then also then, you know, also we immediately, I mean, everything was moving really slow, like a fugue state, you know, like again, like if it's like if a gun went off or something like you can barely hear and like, you know, you can like ever slow motion, you know, and we're trying to like talk through this and I keep saying that we should just bag everything up and make a run for it or start throwing it in people's yards. I wanted to be proactive. The others there, they didn't want to, I guess one of them had the apartment in their name. So they didn't think there was any point in running. And they were just like, well, you get the hell out of here. There's, you know, there's no point in you staying here. There's no point in me leaving. And, you know, correctly was pointed out that, most likely the block was under surveillance that there's just, there's no way that we weren't being watched right now. I had no idea how true that was. I mean, we walked right into it. They were, they were sitting in a car, no more than probably 15 feet off the entrance, you know, about diagonal from the entrance. They had us, the camera was like a machine gun. Everybody that was on the camera got hit. It might've, some got hit that day. Some got hit two and change later, two years and change later. But everybody who was on the camera got hit. So I bailed out the side door of the apartment house and I went up the city stairs as casually as I possibly could to not arouse suspicion. I got to the top of the stairs and that's Hobart street, which is a straight shot to Shenley park and squirrel Hill. And then I just took off like running for my life. I was running as fast as I possibly can. I was, you know, running, 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 running. Anytime I got tired, I just would literally, I mean, I would keel over almost and vomit and then kick it up into high gear. I'm sure I fell a couple times, just got right back up. I know I fell on the side of the hill. I cracked my knee open to the bone. I remember looking and I saw like cartilage on my kneecap. I fell so hard into a rock. Didn't even matter. I literally just like rolled, popped back up, kept running. 
because I knew I was like, this is it. You know, I was like, this is, you know, 404 P's. There's almost there's 469,475 in the car. So 400 pounds and damn near half a million dollars, whatever. I didn't know it was a rate against us at the time, but I knew, I knew this was going to be bad. This was going to be really, 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 really bad. And I just wanted to get home to my wife. I mean, that was, it's funny how, when it all comes down to it, you know, like, when you're about to die or something like this happens that all the other stuff stops mattering. Right. You, you just, you just want to go home. You just want to go home. So I, you know, I, and I did it, you know, I actually made it out in a fair and square foot chase. I got through the court and I don't know if they're actively chasing me, but I got out of there. I did. I was able to get out of there. I'm working my way down the hillside. And then again, I'm in a fugue state because it's funny. I was actually up there yesterday because people are shooting a documentary about this to come out in a few years after the statute of limitations is up. And um, my logic at the time was I was going to work my way down the side of the hill at Shenley to get to the parkway so I could see where um, the driver was being pulled over. And then I looked through the trees in the winter yesterday and my friend who was filming pointed out, he's like, yo, the parkway is like close to the thing at the cliff at Shenley, but it's really like not there. I mean, I was, I was like the guy in private Ryan who got his arm blown off on the beach and picked it up. I mean, I was like completely in a daze. I cracked the back of my phone. I you know multiple phones, but I cracked the back of one of my phone cases off and I took out this yellow sticky note and I called it like the suicide sheet or the dead man sheet. And they had the names of everyone's why all the women, the wives, moms, and girlfriends of anybody. And, you know, these were people that you would never bother under any circumstances other than this. But I just knew that I was going to need the sheet. Well, I already, you know, the driver was already done, but I knew I was going to need the sheet in a second. Then sure enough, my phone rang, I picked it up and there's a voice on the other line. And he's like, I'm like, what's going on? And I just, I literally just said two words. He goes, they're here. And I could hear literally them outside trying to come in from the place I had just left. Yeah. You know, I mean, my heart, you know, I, my heart was in my throat. I couldn't even, I couldn't even feel my arms and legs. You know, I felt like I was just floating, standing there bleeding on the side of the hill, shirt covered in leaves and mud, you know, and I'm just like, okay, I'll get you out. I'll bail you out as soon as I can. And then just hear the voice go, see ya. And then the line cuts. So now I knew there's a huge problem, bail everybody out. And then we see the search warrants are federal. They're not state, local, county, whatever search warrants. They're federal search warrants. So now I know that things are, you know, as bad as they were before, now they're to a level that's absolutely incomprehensibly bad. I mean, they're, it, it, this, is, this is really, really, really bad. We still have no idea about this gang in Braddock. We don't know any of this. You know, we're just kind of in the dark. And this is how federal investigations go. You... You know, you're just one cell kind of in this organism. You have no idea what's going on out outside of you. We didn't know how we were being touched. It got revealed to us a couple weeks later when the one guy in the apartment who was there who got caught red-handed, the driver, and then the guy's brother who got out of the apartment like me, they all got indicted that day along with someone else that bought cannabis off of us that wasn't there that day. I actually had spoken to him that day and he seemed like he was okay. I only later realized that he drove back to his house, I think, and the FBI was at his house on May 24th too. They're just like, he came back to his house getting ripped apart by the feds. So they all got indicted that day along with 25 other people that, you know, we had never met 
had any idea who they were in their lives. I was not indicted that day. So again, I'm kind of just waiting to see what's going to happen and waiting to see is passive. And we're, my wife and I are sitting in a state of abject terror, just terror. Like every second feels like an eternity. Every knock at the door has you scrambling, like literally combat rolling. I'm going to sleep every day fully clothed in a sweatsuit with socks on because I'm assuming that that they're just going to take me out of my bed at four o'clock in the morning and I don't want them to put guns in my wife's face. So I'm just, I I just, I'm ready to snap up at any point and just go to the door so I can get down on the ground like this because that's how they, that's how they do people. And then I know this is probably getting old, but it gets worse because a couple of things happen. One, people start going dark. They start falling off. They're not in contact anymore. And that, you know what that means. You know, they're, they're flipping or they're considering flipping or they've already flipped. They're firing counsel, another surefire sign. So again, the terror is just ratcheting up. It's, it, 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 I, I can't even describe it. It's like the most frightened you've ever been in your life, but it never ends. At a certain point, the cortisol burns out and you just kind of pass out for an hour or two and then wake back up. We're just, you know, we're, we're down to a nub. And this isn't like a day or a week or a month of it. We're going on months now. So it gets worse <laughs> because I hear that there f- people have definitely flipped and that there's a superseding indictment coming. So at this point, I have my counsel reach out to the feds and ask if I can simply just turn myself in and surrender on the charges that everyone else has. Because for the sake of my wife and for the sake of myself and my mom and my dad and my brother, I'm like, this is just egregious. It's too much. I, I can't, we can't do this anymore. This is, this is an absolute nightmare. The feds come back and they're like, well, we're not interested in that. Um, you know, but we're always interested if you want to talk basically saying in so many words that you you can't do that. We don't, we're not going to let you do that. You don't dictate when you go to prison. We dictate when you go to prison. But, you know, if you want to snitch on people, we're all good. You know, we can, we can, you can, you can snitch, you know, and help yourself out basically. And I was like, no, I won't do that. I absolutely won't do that at all. So, you know, they know where to find me. So this is the fall, winter. We just hunker down 19. We just hunker down in our place. Again, an abject misery and terror and wait and wait and wait. Over the summer, right before all this happened, the guy's brother who escaped the house, who was my one of my best friend's dads, he kills himself. He hangs because he was a guy, he was never been in trouble before in his life. Just, you know, he would be there, help his brother out here and there. He wasn't like really a serious player in any way, shape or form. And the feds hit him with a five-year mandatory minimum indictment. And he's in his sixties and he just, you know, he didn't want to tell on anybody and he didn't want to do the time. He just, he, he got fired from his job. He was completely isolated and he just lost it. He just couldn't do it anymore. I mean, you know, speaking to mental health, he, he just, he, he snapped. He couldn't, he couldn't carry on. So that's, I mean, that's kind of the frame that we're in. COVID happens and then nothing, you know, nothing's happening. COVID happens, nothing happens. It's taking so long now that even some of my attorneys are starting to think that it might not come. They might, eh, you know, you might've lucked out, reprioritized. It's just weed with COVID and well, the fentanyl that's going on and stuff, they just, their priorities are much different now. So we start to kind of take these like tentative, like, you know, like amphibian coming out the ocean, you know, mammal, uh, first animal on land steps to try and get back to our lives. 
And I, you know, I can't like stress like how hard that is. I mean, people, maybe people don't understand or maybe they wouldn't, but even simple things like leaving the home, like seeing my parents going around the block, like anything, because we were just like completely obliterated, you know, and we keep going, keep going, keep, you know, literally one Lego at a time, building the power of Babel, start to build our lives back up again. I start a legitimate business. She helps me out because I realized that, you know, this is what it's, it's over. And if we have a chance, then we can't waste any more time in our lives. We have to move forward with our lives. It's just, it's a human impulse, right? You know, you just, you can't, you can't sit like that forever. So we try and, you know, things, I mean, look like, you know, we have our setbacks or struggles, but things are generally working out. We're moving forward. The presidential election happens. You know, now we're a year and a half past it. New president comes in who says that he's not going to do these cases anymore. You know, so new DOJ is coming in in a few months. We know that. So now we're like, oh, oh, prayer hands, you know, like, like, please, please, please. We're, we're, ho- you know, we're actually starting to be hopeful, a little hopeful. Weird things happen here and there that looking back on it, I realize that it was all kind of like the vanilla sky. You know, it was all this dream that was not meant to be. Unfortunately, I mean, for the person who is the victim, a a man got killed in my back alley in Highland Park um, around the election. And we were in San Diego. It was the first time I'd seen my brother since before the incident. So it was like, you know, I didn't see my brother, my niece, my nephew, my sister-in-law in in a year and a half. We went out to California during COVID. So we stayed out there for a very long time, obviously, because, you know, it's it's the, the, the hazards of travel and such. And, um, I got a call when we were in San Diego, it was like the day after the election. And it was one of my federal lawyers. And they were like, the city cops are looking for you because they have, uh, they want, um, your security camera footage. They think that a man might've gotten killed on like shot, you know, pursued down your alley and shot to death on the camera. I had unplugged my cameras after the raid, I'd taken my whole security mainframe and literally just like thrown it in the river. So the cameras weren't operable. They, they were there, but they, they weren't operable. But I realized as I'm sitting there and then all of a sudden my wife's phone starts ringing and it's county homicide and my phone starts ringing again and it's like city homicide. And I'm thinking and I'm like, how the fuck do you have my number? I've never been charged federally before. Like, I mean, okay, I was a lawyer at one point, so you might know who a lawyer was to get my number or this or that or whatever. But like, this is a guy who's never officially represented me on anything. So that, you know, so it's like little things like that. You think you're like, okay, so there's definitely a big file open on me with all sorts of dossier information and stuff like that. You know, it's like, okay, well, that that's not good. <laughs> But, you know, I guess you put blinders on to some extent, because if they're not coming, you have to live your life. And more time goes on. You know, January 6th happens. Biden's president, the U.S. attorney who was in Pittsburgh at the time when this happened, who's, you know, hardcore right wing one order Republican is gone. There's an interim one. And we know there's a liberal Democrat who's going to be appointed because this is how it goes politically. And my wife and I are like, okay, like maybe like we really are going to, you know, now we're two years out, two years plus out. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, so we're like, maybe, maybe we're going to be okay. You know, like maybe we have a chance here. And you know, again, we said to each other, we're like, no more wasted days, no more wasted time. They wasted so much of our time with this, you know, like, like just literally in agony, you're not doing anything. You're sitting, you know, the TV's on, you're not watching it. You're just kind of sitting in the dark, like looking at a corner shaking. 
no more of that, no more of that passive misery. We're going to live our lives. Okay. What do we want? Well, I mean, the thing that we wanted more than anything was to have a family, to be parents. We, you know, in 2019, it looked like going to prison's imminent. So, you know, obviously that makes it complicated to do like, what do we do? How do we now we're like, okay, full steam ahead. So we contact the adoption agency. We start jumping through the hoops. I mean, you know, there's not just one hoop. There's like 75 hoops shelling out money left and right, doing hundreds of hours of classes, getting every type of psychological check, medical check, and I, you know, multiple FBI background checks, pass everything. The last thing that we have to do is on, on that last thing we have to do, last thing we have to do on the domestic side, on our side is August 21st, there was a home study. Social worker comes to the house, walks around. I go for a walk with her in Highland Park, talk to her for a couple hours. And she says, you know, you guys are going to be great parents. We are so happy that to work with you. This is going to be great. You know, next next steps are we're going to get this dossier into uh, them so they can, you know, Korean government can process it. And then, you know, by the fall, we're probably looking at you guys having to go to Seoul for about three weeks. So start, you know, making plans for that, budgeting money and looking for accommodations and stuff because it's going to come up very soon, you know. And that's August 21st on August 23rd, it was 9.45 at night. I was sitting on the couch smoking a bowl. She was watching Real Housewives. And I get a call on my phone. I look down. My phone's on my knee. I put my bowl down. And it's it's Chuck Porter. It's one of my federal criminal defense attorneys. And I already knew. I'm just like, there is absolutely no reason for him to be calling me. This is There's only one reason. There's one reason for him to be calling me. So I look at her and I'm just like, I, and she can just tell immediately. I have this look on my face like, oh God, oh God, oh God. And she's like, what? And I'm like, it's it's Chuck. I show her the phone screen. And she just looks at me and she's like, she's like, so there's no adoption now. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I, I was like, I'm really, really sorry. I love you. And she was like, I love you too. And I was like, all right, I have to pick this up. So I picked it up and I even, you know, he sounded regrettable. He was just like, look, man, you, uh, they got you under seal. I don't know for the charges yet. They called, they've actually tried to come to your house twice today, but you weren't there. You got to go turn yourself in, man. Yeah. Are you at home? Are you, where are you? You know, and I made arrangements to turn myself in, got indicted for the exact same charge that I tried to turn myself in for about two and a half years before. Oh my gosh. I, I just such a heartbreaker. And Can you imagine a better you? Empathic Health is a global community providing support so you can find more fun, freedom, and connection in your life. Empathic Health is my integration solution for incorporating my healing work into my daily routine. Empathic Health has given me a space to use my voice to express my thoughts and be myself in a safe place. I'm excited to get to the type of work that gives my life more clarity and joy. Helping others has done nothing but help me in return. Know your medicine, know yourself. Join Elizabeth, myself, and the rest of the community today at empathic.health. sort of made an outline and it's hard to go on to uh, asking you about, um, you know, being a lawyer and, and so, you know, your famous ad that you're known for. Um, and, and maybe that would be a, a welcome break to you in this conversation. But I just have to say, what a brave man. And I hope that so many people hear this and understand the pain and over such a drug that that we're legalizing across the country, and I'm sure you'll hear that over and over again. Um, 
So you were, you were a lawyer. I was, I was a criminal defense attorney too. I didn't practice federally, but that's, but I was exactly in the space for this to be as damaging as it possibly could for me. But yeah, I was, I would go ahead. I was written up. So at Forbes, Slate, Washington Post, Pittsburgh, yep. the Post-Gazette, um, you know, this ad that you did promoting your street knowledge and you think like a criminal so you can help criminals. And um, I mean, I read in one article, it was over a million impressions online. And just as marketers, we were wondering, did this work in your favor or was it harmful to your current circumstances? Well, it was highly harmful to my current circumstances. Obviously, I, I mean, you know, I this I would assume this is going to come out after my sentencing. So I'll just say what I think. And I almost know that it's the thing. Nobody says it, but everyone knows it's true. The only reason I got indicted was because I made the commercial. I mean, they have a wide range of discretion over who they indict and who they don't. They can't indict every case that crosses like their path. They already had four guys from that indictment. I mean, yeah, the all or almost all of those guys are rats. Sure, I got told on. Sure, I was on camera. Okay, they can. Well, I don't see them taking two and a half years to indict me for this unless they had a really, really strong motivation to do so because it's a weed case. It's probably going to be the last weed case that's ever indicted. So in the end, I honestly think, I mean, you know, they'll never admit it, but I just don't, I just don't see any other way. If I'm John Smith, I have a feeling that they just refer me down to the Pennsylvania State Police Bureau of Narcotics investigation and start a, you know, they're like, all right, you know, this, here's a file on this guy. This guy was doing some stuff. Take a look at him, whatever. I just don't, or or if they're going to do that, they would charge me immediately. The fact that they basically investigated me, like I committed a cold case murder just to indict me for weed. It, to me, to me, I'm just like, I mean, it's just common sense. It's the commercial. God. So mm, the I commercial. No yeah. The, I mean, you know, again, I can never prove that. And there might be other attorneys are like, no, no, that's not true. Factually. And look, I'm factually guilty. I did what I did. I'm not, I never, I stood on it like a man. I pled guilty immediately. I accepted responsibility for it. I never pretended that I didn't do it. Um, I didn't tell anybody. So I, I can't, you can't take more responsibility for it than I did. I just, I'm not saying that I am innocent and I was, uh, you know, persecuted because of the commercial. I just don't see the way that the real world works, you know, behind closed doors, that this remains a persistent priority through two presidential administrations, two attorneys general, you know, multiple departments of justice. Like, like, you know, commonsensically, I think anybody who is reasonably intelligent would be like, oh, yeah. They, and they, and they could say well you deserve that because you made the commercial I'm not I'm not even go- going there just but the the reason that they wanted to do this so badly and they just had such a roaring passion for it over so many years going into three years was because of the commercial so no the commercial definitely hurt me I didn't make the commercial in an attempt to advertise my my criminal acumen I made the commercial because I was trying to work a legit job and I just gotten out of law school and I didn't want to sell weed anymore and then i got really sick and i almost died and i like i because if you look in the commercial i weigh like 150 pounds in the commercial i'm almost skeletal i had a colostomy bag i'd lost like probably half my body weight i mean i was still like to swear i was fucked up and again you know i had smallest violin but i had you know i'm a millennial i didn't have any health insurance um i you know i i had a, I had a wife that i i want, was taking care of and wanted to take care of we wanted to have a family so I needed to come up with a vehicle to jump the line. 
Um, you know, like uh, there are a lot of baby boomers and even like silent generation guys who are kind of clogging up the monetary pipeline and the criminal defense game in a old depopulated city like Pittsburgh. So I needed something that was going to kickstart it. Uh, did I think it was going to get millions of views or over a million views or however it did? Uh, no, I had absolutely no idea. I thought I was going to get like 20, 30,000 and it would get me um, enough local run that I could put my, 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 my feet under me and move forward. Because what actually happened with the commercial was I did make a good amount of money off of the commercial in terms of booking clients. But then I actually left the practice of law very soon after the commercial because I realized that the commercial was prejudicing people against me so much that it was messing my clients up. It was, uh, the, the, there was just, you know, I was always the guy with the commercial and the way that the judges are here and cops are here and prosecutors are here, never live it down. You know, it just never, I mean, obviously now never, but even then, and it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't mega fair. I got, like, I got held in contempt of court once and the judge wanted to, uh, the judge wanted to talk to me about the commercial and I'd like what, why I got held in contempt of court for had nothing to do with the commercial whatsoever, like nothing. So, you know, I, I, um, I, I, yeah. So I, I just realized that like, there's, you know, th th there was nothing, there was nothing there for me anymore. It wasn't going to help me. I wasn't going to be able to do anything to move forward in a proper way. So, all I could really do is I could, um, yeah, I, I could go back to the streets, so to speak. And, you know, you mentioned about potentially being uh, one of the last cannabis prisoners. And I read the Andrew D'Angelo piece. Um, he's founder of the Last Prisoner Project on the interview that he did in Forbes on you. And I wanted to just get some insight, you know, because we really want to try to see how we can help or how we can, you know, come together and figure out, like, we know that if Pennsylvania becomes an adult use market, that there's talks of expungement for non-cannabis cannabis convictions. But because even though this is a first time nonviolent cannabis conviction, is this can't help. Like the state's expungement wouldn't be able to help, right? Like this would mean that we would have to get federal government ex cannabis expungements to order to help you. Is yeah, that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, because this is a federal charge, there's no, um, there's no, the only mechanism, literally the only, there's only two mechanisms to my knowledge that exist for any sort of mitigation, front end mitigation for my uh, circumstances, which would be literally Joe Biden pardoning me individually or commuting me individually or commuting cannabis prisoners as a class, which is something that there has been at least some talk of. I'm not from him. I mean, he hasn't done anything. It doesn't look wants to do anything. But I mean, he has gotten battered by uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And I think, you know, 50, 40, 50 members of the House Democratic Caucus, because they said, hey, you promised to do this when you were warning, you haven't done anything. And this isn't something that would take like an act of Congress, which was the second part of what I was saying. The other thing, the only other thing you could do is you could have an act of Congress, you know, they would have to, you know, the Moore Act, the CAOA Act, the States Act, I think there's four or five dueling bills in the House right now and Senate, if one of those went through, I think all of them contain at least some provision for relief for first-time nonviolent uh, federal cannabis prisoners. But again, you know, trying to pass something in Congress now, I, you know, you might as well be trying to throw a football a thousand yards through a garbage can. It's not happening. I mean, it's the real is realistically, Mitch McConnell will never let any cannabis legislation pass, and so you would have to peel off. You don't have cinema and you don't have Mankin. 
you don't that <laughs> they won't vote for it. So even assuming you can get 48 other Democrats on the floor, you'd have to peel off 12 Republicans. Uh, so I mean, you got Rand Paul. Um, okay, so that's 11. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know if there's any others. There might be, there might not. I haven't heard any Republican senator besides Rand Paul say they'd vote for it. So there you go. So you need 11 more senators. So it's not, it's not ha- that's why people are so frustrated. Like, why won't it happen? Well, you need 11 Republicans. It's a numbers senators. game. There's no doubt. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Numbers game or numbers game or Joe Biden, whatever happens in the state's not going to affect me, unfortunately. I mean, look, at this point, I'd have cut my hand off with a meat cleaver to get a state charge because this would have been over. Right. Now. Right. I'd have, I'd have done like eight months, I mean, and gone home. <laughs> I mean, it still would have been highly inconvenient and stressful and, you know, whatever. But I, I think one of the reasons that people have such a large degree of sympathy or empathy for me and hearing my story is even if you don't agree with what I did, the punishment is just so it wacky. It doesn't fit the crime. No. Yeah. No. Even if you think I committed a crime, a lot of people are like, you didn't do anything wrong. But okay, okay, okay. I pled guilty, I, whatever. I committed a crime. I deserve to be a felon. Sure. Okay. Five year mandatory minimum in 2022. No, no, it doesn't fit the crime. It's, it's, it's insane to be in this position now. It's, it's surreal. It's like being a character in a Joseph Heller novel or something. Yeah. So you're saying, okay, there are laws. I didn't, I, I didn't abide by the laws. Um, and and basically, I think all of this comes down to paying taxes, right? And I'm thinking sure. what your incarceration is going to cost taxpayers and the toll that it's going to take on your life and those in your life. Um, it would make sense to just pay a fine, right? To have you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's going to be at least, I think my prosecution was like 45. They estimated it in my pre-sentence report. So this is just off the back of my head. I, I When I saw your question, I looked at it downstairs in my house. I keep it like packed up to my fridge. Um, so it's a, I think it's $45,000 plus a year to keep me incarcerated, maybe up to 60. And then my prosecution was like another $45,000. And then that's also not counting the investigation right. because remember – they followed us around for months at a time. They had cameras outside our house. I mean, you know, there were there are FBI agents who make probably low six figure salaries who were tasked to following me mm. around after I had quit selling weed to see if I was going to attempt to sell weed again or engage in thinking or talking with other people about the eventuality or 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 perhaps that I may sell weed. So I don't know how much money they spent in terms of, you know, fuel, surveillance, vehicles, man hours, whatever. No. So, I mean, you're talking about, and then I still haven't been fined. I'm sure I'm going to get a killer fine on top of that. Um, and then plus they, they, they took what half a million dollars of weed and half a million dollars of money. So, yeah, I mean, this is, and, and that doesn't go to like, and remember that that just goes to law enforcement right, too. Right. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's their hit. That's a straight rip for them. So, uh, yeah, no, in the end, a fine would have been great. I'd have been happy to pay a fine. I would have loved to have entered the legal cannabis industry while I was at my peak, quote unquote. I would have, they'd had some amnesty program where they were like, look, like you have to sign an oath saying you're never going to sell weed illegally again. Like you have to kick up, you have to kick over 80% of what you've made so far or whatever. And in exchange, you get a store, you get a license or whatever for a store or a grow or a processing facility. I would have done that in a heartbeat. 
I, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd race downtown. I've been like, okay, what, what do I have to do? What hoops do I have to jump through? But the truth of the matter is in PA, they keep, they kept it very, very small. Right. Cause I did, I mean, I did try and there were other people who wanted to do it, but they made it in PA. I mean, I don't know for a fact. I, I hope really, I do hope that one or two or three legacy market women or men snuck in somehow, you know, they were able to like do the hoops and maneuver to get in. But the way it was structured, they made it virtually impossible to do so. And they wanted it to be right. that way. They, they wanted it to be mostly older white men from out of state. That That's who they, that, 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 that's who they want. The cannabis owners, they get to sell cannabis here without any federal repercussion, even though we're all breaking the same laws. So again, if you're going to go to you broke the law, you should be in trouble. I don't want anyone else to be in trouble. I mean, that's why I didn't tell anybody. It's against my moral principles. But, you know, for sake of fairness, then I either you shouldn't be allowed to, I should have a mechanism to, or nobody should be allowed to, or maybe the state should sell it, you know, which I don't want either, honestly. I just, there's absolutely no way of analyzing this right now where unless you are doing mental gymnastics, you don't come to the conclusion that it's fundamentally inequitable and not just for me, for, for plenty of other people in this situation too, whether you're under criminal justice penalties like me, or whether you're simply just barred from the industry that you should have been able to legitimately participate in like so many other people that probably could have gotten a license, but were excluded by the onerous financial requirements. Right. And Daniel, I just wish that there was more that we can do because like you and so many nonviolent cannabis prisoners are facing similar circumstances while these others are getting very rich. Yeah. And we will definitely continue to fight for you and others. I want to thank you deeply for sharing your personal story with us today. I really appreciate you having me, both of you. I do. Yes, I want to say thank you for sharing your story and ask, is there anything that our listeners can do to help you? Do you have a petition or any way that we can show support? Well, so there's a few things that can happen or should happen that the listeners could do. Um, There are several petitions that are circulating right now to get to the White House to demand President Biden to act on his promises that he made during his campaign uh, to pardon all nonviolent federal cannabis prisoners. Um, You know, they're on change.org. One is by Amy Kandu, Amy Pova, who was federally incarcerated. And then she was pardoned, I think, uh, under the Clinton administration. And she's a decarceration advocate. And then the other is by Weldon Angelos. And his is also up there. And he was also in prison for a nonviolent federal marijuana offense. And he was commuted by Obama and pardoned by Trump. So those are out there. You can also donate to the Last Prisoner Project and uh, Freedom Grows Forever. And you can also look out on the 40 tons website and get the t-shirt I have and all the, everything, all the money from that, it doesn't go to me. It goes to other indigent federal cannabis prisoners because a lot of people don't have any family or community support. They're just locked in a cage for cannabis with absolutely no one to even get them basic necessities. And the other last thing that people can do is just really pressure your local representative blue or red at this point and tell them that you want all federal nonviolent cannabis prisoners freed. And the reason we want all cannabis prisoners freed, but the state prisoners, it has to happen by the governor. It's complicated. The federal, all Biden would have to do now is literally say, yes, that's it. Sign his name on one piece of paper and this would all be over. I'd be okay. My wife would be okay. My mom would be okay. Everybody would be okay if he did this. 
And it's what he promised on when he ran his election. It was why people voted for him, thinking that he was going to do the right thing. That we even saw Trump on his way out pardon a bunch of cannabis yeah. prisoners. So it's like, here we are, we're in this new administration. We have not seen anything by our current president to support this. So I really encourage everyone listening today, if Daniel's story has spoken to you, to please do these things. Share with your leaders and your community that cannabis matters to you and that folks like Daniel should not be doing time this for for these we need to make this change we are so close we keep seeing that we're on the brink of this let's end this now and get our get people like daniel the life get their life back and we will continue to do this daniel we will link all of those petitions on our blog when we share the podcast we will make sure that we continue to link up and share with people about how they can support one another because no matter what we are here for you and we want to continue to support you no matter how we can thank you so much i really appreciate it thank you so thank you again to Danny Musing for joining us today on The Vine. For cannabis and psychedelic news, visit us online at plantmediaproject.com. Together, we can end the stigma around cannabis and psychedelics. Mm-hmm.